today is what many churches um, refer to as Palm Sunday. It is the Sunday before Easter uh, when Jesus entered into Jerusalem. Earlier in the story of his life, there comes this moment that Luke says that Jesus, recognizing that it was his time, set his face towards Jerusalem. And so this Sunday marks the Sunday of Jesus' entry into that city knowing that he is going to be crucified. And it starts uh, what's called Holy Week. It's the mark of the beginning of Holy Week, this week where we think about the most important seven days in history. Um, Yeah, we actually know, I think it's super interesting that we know what that week looked like and and when it occurred. Uh, We know that he entered on a Sunday. We know that he was crucified uh, on a Friday, that he rose again on a Sunday. I think it's really interesting that we we know that and we can observe that. And that's what this week is. As a matter of fact, uh, each week, this week, we're gonna be sending out, um, we'll let you know through uh, emails and and notifications and stuff like that. But we're gonna be sending out uh, different resources that help you with this week. I hope that you get to set aside 10, 15 minutes each day uh, this week as we lead up to Easter, the celebration of Easter next week, to meditate on what Jesus was doing, what he was accomplishing, what he was going through, and what that means for us. Uh, So as we uh, kind of enter into Holy Week, starting with Palm Sunday, I want to actually talk this week about the crucifixion. Uh, even though uh, we know that happens, uh, so the week sets, is set up like this. We have Monday, Thursday, which is the, uh, marks the night that Jesus uh, got down on his hands and knees and, and washed the feet of the disciples, and he gave this amazing talk. As a matter of fact, in, in this Lenten season, it's the night that he prayed, uh, in this Lenten season, uh, the prayer that we've been talking about, right? This um, high priestly prayer that he prays for, that he would be glorified in his, in his crucifixion, and that the disciples will be held in unity, and then he actually prays for us. That's what we've been talking about this season. That's marked on, on what's called Monday, Thursday, and then Good Friday uh, is the Friday that he was crucified. Saturday, silence, uh, and then Sunday, the tomb is empty. And so as we, we prepare this week, I, I want to actually talk this week, this, today about the crucifixion. But um, I actually want to do it by talking about two things that happened, one before and one after. I think it's a good picture. It, it gives us a good understanding. It gives us just this glimpse into what I think the Christian life is like, what, what we can expect, right? Uh, what is expected in the Christian life? Um, and how the cross changes everything. And so I want to actually, we're going to actually read two different texts from two different gospels uh, to get this picture of what the cross is like without actually reading about the crucifixion. Uh, I think this glimpse is beautiful. So I'm going to start in Luke. If you have a Bible, uh, I'll be in Luke 22. I'm going to start in verse 24. And I'm going to read a lot of this because it's just a really good story. Uh, so it's worth reading. Uh, I'm going to read a lot of it. Uh, yeah, here he goes. Verse 24. So this is, this is Monday, Thursday. This is the night that they're having um, Jesus uh, washes their feet and all this stuff. And a dispute arose among them, the disciples, as to which of them was regarded as the greatest. And he said to them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. But that's not so with you. Rather, let's the greatest among you Become the youngest, and the leader as the one who serves. For who is the greater, one who reclines at the table or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at the table? But I am among you as the one who serves. 
you are those who have stayed with me in my trials, and I assign to you, as my Father assigned to me, a kingdom that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat, but I've prayed for you that you may, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. And Peter said to him, Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. And Jesus said to him, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. And he said to them, when I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? And they said, nothing. And he said to them, but now let the one who has a money bag take it. Likewise, a knapsack, let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. For I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors. And what is written about me has its fulfillment. And they said, look, Lord, here are two swords. And he said to them, it's enough. And he came out and went, and as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples followed him. And he came to the place, he said to them, pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and he prayed, saying, Father, if you're willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And then he appeared to him, and there appeared to him an angel from heaven strengthening him, and he began in agony. He prayed more earnestly. And his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. When he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said to them, why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. While he was speaking, there came a crowd. And and the man called Judas, one of the 12, was leading them. And he drew near to Jesus to kiss him. And Jesus said to him, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? And when those who were around him saw what would follow, they said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? And one of them struck the servant and the high priest and cut off his right ear. But Jesus said, no more of this. He touched his ear and he healed him. Then Jesus said to the chief priests and to the officers and to the temple and the elders who had come out against him, have you come, against, uh, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs? When I was with you day after day in the temple, you didn't lay hands on me. But this is your hour and the power of darkness. And they seized him, led him away bringing him into the high priest's house, and Peter was following at a distance. When they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat down among them. And the servant girl, seeing him as he sat in the light and looking closely at him, said, this man was also with him. But he denied it, saying, woman, I, I, don't know, I don't know him. And a little later, someone else saw him and said, you are one of them. But Peter said, man, I am not. And after an interval of about an hour, still another insisted, saying, certainly this man also was with him, for he is a Galilean. But Peter said, man, I do not know what you were talking about. And immediately, while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him, before the rooster crows, today you will deny me three times. And he went out and he wept bitterly. This is a dramatic scene. Jesus is arrested. He's 
been with his disciples all night and he's let out and he's arrested uh, and uh, there's this just heartbreaking moment where Peter denies him three times and then realizes what he's done and looks up and catches Jesus' eye. He would have been in the courtyard around a fire trying to keep himself warm and and he looks up and and, and probably at a second or third level he would have seen Jesus as they were carrying him about, uh, moving him from from place to place between the different people, the different rooms that that they were taking in front of and dragging him uh, in his trial. And Peter would would have been just watching at a distance, trying to keep warm. I just, like, man, it's hard for me to imagine. I, I think that there's more going on here, though, than Peter just lacks bravery, right? Or his love's not strong enough. I mean, I think that we have to think about what's happening in Peter. I mean, he is so confused and so shocked. I mean, he just saw earlier in the week uh, on, on what we call Palm Sunday. Now, he saw Jesus come into the city, and there were, like, just huge crowds all around him. And they were coming out of the woodwork, man. They were coming out of everywhere. And they're taking palm fronds and they're laying them on the road in front of him. They're taking their coats and they're laying them on the road. And he's riding in on this donkey. And, 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 and like people are freaking out. I mean, he, what Peter thought he had seen was the fulfillment of an old prophecy. This guy named Zechariah had written a long, long time ago about this scene. And Peter thinks what he's just seen is from Zechariah 9. Uh, pull that up, please says this, rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous, having salvation is he, humble, mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I'll cut off the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem. The battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth." Peter thinks he's just seen this prophecy fulfilled a few days ago. I mean, these people are coming out and they're, they're, they're singing and they're praising him using language that was reserved for the Messiah. And so they come out in this way, he's just seen this happen, and then he sees Jesus not only arrested, but he almost seems to go with them willingly without a fight. His expectations and his worldview have just been shattered. And he's overwhelmed. And and because here's the deal. Peter had this idea in his head of what was about to happen. He actually had this idea in his head of of who Jesus was, right? You can tell because he's always confused, right? He's not just him, but the other disciples as well. They they seem to be confused by Jesus' behavior because they they have this idea. So for example, uh, Jesus asked them at one point, his disciples before this, he says, hey, who do you think that I am? And Peter says, hey, you're the Messiah. You're the one that all the scriptures talked about. You're the, the hope of Israel. You are the guy. You are from heaven. God has sent you and you you are the one that's going to bring salvation. And Jesus says, man, you don't even know what you're talking about. That is from God himself. God has spoken through you. In the very next scene, basically Jesus turns around and says, all right, guys, I'm headed to die. And Peter goes, whoa, dude, st- like, you can't talk like that. And Jesus looks at him and calls him the devil and says, get out of my way. It's almost like if you read the gospels and the stories of the gospels, it's almost like Peter um, yeah, he's like, hey, I believe that you're the Messiah, you're the promised one, but you're doing it wrong. Like, he just seems so confused by Jesus' behavior over and over and over again because he has this idea of what the Messiah is supposed to look like. And Jesus seems to keep acting in a way that's different. 
we all have this idea of what a savior is supposed to be. Peter had his idea, and I think that we have ours. I heard these two entertainers talking this week. Uh, uh, they had a conversation, and um, one of them says, why, why do you think that you do this? Why do you think that you do what you do? And uh, the other one says, I know exactly why, because I'm, the, I'm, I'm a stand-up comic because I'm the same six-year-old to, um, today that I was then. He goes, I, I thought that if I could walk in a room and make everything laugh, everybody laugh, then everything would be okay. Nobody would get hit. Everybody would be happy. It'd be fine. And I just, I haven't grown out of that. He said, I thought that if I could just become like a famous comic and walk into a room and make everybody laugh, that my life would just fall into place. I became a famous, successful comic, and the rest of my life is still trash. He thought that it would, he didn't use this language, but what he's saying is, I thought that if I became this comic and I could control a room and make people love me and make people laugh, that everything would be okay. I thought it would save me, and it didn't. We all have this idea. I think that the, one of the reasons that I get so, um, I've been thinking about this a lot lately. I am, uh, what's the right word? Dismissive of, let's say dismissive, of the idea that we hear, I hear so much people say, when they're like, hey, I'm grateful, and you're like, grateful to whom? And they're like, you know, the universe. I get really upset because there's this cognitive disconnect in saying, saying something like that. Like, you're grateful to it. Like, if you don't believe there's a God, what, like, you, I love the instinct to be grateful. Like, at least they have that, right? Like, at least they have that instinct to be grateful, to have gratitude to something. Uh, so maybe I shouldn't be so harsh. Uh, because, I mean, some people don't even have that, right? Like, there's, you know, don't even have the instinct to be grateful. Uh, we have all this stuff and we just do nothing but complain. Uh, but at least we have this, some people have this instinct to be grateful and they don't know to whom to be grateful. And so they just say, well, I'm just grateful to the universe. That drives me insane. Like, how can you be grateful to an impersonal, cold, godless universe? You, that, that's insane. It's the, same, it's the same thing as when people are like, I, I just gonna believe in me, right? That, that cognitive disc, like, why would you keep believing in you? Believing in you is what got you here. It's no good. Like, you should stop believing in you because it's not, like, what, what is there inside of you that, oh, it's just, it's in, maybe condescending is a better word for how I feel about that, and that's not good. I should work on that. But, and the reason is because it doesn't make any sense to me. There's, like, there's no logic there. But I think the reason that people believe these things, that we want to believe them, that we will even ignore the fact that it doesn't make sense is because the universe and the, the me, the inside of me that I just want to listen to, uh, they'll never ask you to change. The universe is not going to ask you to be different than you are, <laughs> right? The, the, the person in you who you believe you are, who's just a six-year-old you never grew out of, right? Who just wants a cupcake, right? Just stomping their feet sad because they can't get a cupcake. We just never really grew out of that. If I just had a cupcake, everything would be fine. The world would be just if I just had a cupcake and I just don't know that we ever really grow up. And I think that we're willing to live with the fact that that doesn't make sense because it'll never demand that I change. And so I'll live with the cognitive disconnect if I can just continue on this path, thinking that if I just have this one thing, it will save me, like this comedian and like Peter, and we're confused when it doesn't play out the way that we think it should. We all have this idea of what might save us, what might make everything okay. And the thing about the God of the Bible is, is that he's not willing to let us just stick with that. He wants to break us of those habits. He won't let us have a lesser savior. Because here's the truth. If you got everything that you wanted, 
if you got everything that your heart's desired, that you, your heart desired, you would still live with shame and sin. You would still live in a world broken by sin, full of tears and sadness, and you would still one day die. There's no savior that you can make up that will deal with those things. Only a God who came and died on the cross for you could deal with those. So he's not gonna turn us over to these lesser saviors that can't actually fix the world. He's promised to fix the whole world. It's just that we're often not thrilled with the way that he goes about it in our lives, right? Peter's not thrilled about the way he's going. He's like, I don't, I don't know this. I think that Peter, in this moment, Jesus told him that he was going to the cross, and he tells us that, that we're supposed to go the way of the cross. It's just, it doesn't make any sense to us. It seems like Paul says it's foolishness to the world. It doesn't make any sense. And Peter's, I think when Peter says, I don't know him, I think that he unintentionally was telling the truth. Does that make sense? Like, here's what I mean. When they said, hey, don't you know this guy? Didn't you travel with him? And Peter goes, this guy? The guy who just walked away and got arrested? No, I don't know him. The one who looks like he might be crucified? That's not the Jesus that I know. The Jesus I know wouldn't let that happen. The Jesus I know is gonna let me sit at his right hand and he's gonna be a ruler. This Jesus, I, I don't know that I've known him. And I think it was true. I don't think he really understood him yet. And so he denies him. And I think that we, I know that we do. We do the same thing. When we deny him every, every time he tells me what to do with my finances and I don't, I deny him. Every time he tells me what to do in my relationships, when he says forgive and I just don't want to forgive that person, it's just easier to forget about him. I'm, I'm denying his lordship. I'm saying, hey, the Jesus that I know wouldn't really ask me to do that with my money. The Jesus that I've made up wouldn't really ask me to forgive this person who hurt me so much. The Jesus that I know, and we keep making up this savior that we think will make everything okay, and Jesus seems intent on going to the cross anyway. He seems intent on doing it the way that he intended from the very beginning. He sets his face towards Jerusalem, and he goes and he dies. It's not the end of the story, though. To John. Uh, In John, this other guy who wrote a gospel, John writes this in verse 21. So Jesus goes after this scene. He's uh, a sham trial. He's convicted. He's crucified. He dies. He goes into a tomb. Uh, He's in the tomb Friday, Saturday, and Sunday morning. They show up at the tomb. These women show up at the tomb and find it empty. We'll celebrate that next Sunday. And then Jesus begins to do this thing where he appears to people, but he does it in really disturbing ways. Like he just pops into rooms that are locked uh, and people don't recognize him. He shows up with people inside the road. But here's this one scene in John 21. I want to read it to you. Uh, I'm going to start in verse, I'm just going to read, you know, I'm going to read a lot of this too. Uh, John 21, uh, this is an amazing scene. uh, Jesus has risen from the dead. He's appeared a couple times. Uh, 21, uh, verse one. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. And he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the son of Zebedee, and two other of the disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. And they said to him, we'll go with you. And went out and they got into a boat. But that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore. Yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? And they answered him, no. And he said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you'll find some. So they cast it, 
And now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. And this disciple, whom, that disciple whom Jesus loved, therefore said to Peter, it's the Lord. And when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment for he'd stripped for work and threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far off in the land, about a hundred yards off. And when they got out on the land, uh, uh, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. And Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you've caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. And Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now, none of the disciples dared ask, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they'd finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, feed my lambs. And he said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you were old, you will stretch out your hand and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. I think there's more going on here. Uh, If you've ever heard this uh, before, I heard it when I was young, uh, um, this preached, I think there's more going on than, it's not about the depth of Peter's love. Like I've heard it said before that there's like different words used for love. And that's true, different words are used for love. But I I don't know that it necessarily, some of the newer research shows that that just, it's probably just a feature of the way that John writes. There's no more weight in one of these. I don't know that one of the words for love carries more weight than the other. I don't think this is about, hey, Peter, do you love me? But do you love me? But do you love me? I don't think it was like that. I don't think that's what's happening. I think there's more going on. Uh, I think what's going on is, I think what he's asking him is this. Hey, Peter, do you love me? I know that you love the idea of me before the cross, but now that you see the way that I'm really going, do you love me? Like, I know that you know the person that you've been hanging out with, but you had an idea fixed in your head about how I was supposed to act. Now that you see that my kingdom is not what you thought it was, do you still? I mean, it's one thing to follow Jesus when you think what's at the end of following him is reward and power and glory. It's another when it might include things that cost you. Do you love me? And he keeps telling him every time he asks him, he tells him why he's asking him. I'm asking you because what I'm about to ask you to do is to go serve me to feed my sheep. You remember when I washed your feet? Yeah, that's the way to glory. I'm gonna ask you to do that. Do you remember when I washed your feet? Do you remember when I got up early and I, and I prayed for you? Do, you? do you remember how I'm constantly teaching and constantly being with you? Do you remember how I, it is my job, how I was among you to serve? Yeah, do you love me? Yeah, that's what I'm gonna ask you to do. See, Jesus came with this 
Um, the best way I've heard it described, I love this, this description of it, he came declaring a kingdom, right? That's what the people on Palm Sunday recognize. They're like, this guy is the king. He's been doing king-like stuff and saying king-like things. He's the promised king. And Jesus, by hopping on that donkey and riding to Jerusalem, goes, that's right, I'm the king. But he's this king of this upside-down kingdom. Right? So if you think of like Roman kingdom, right, with these huge parades and, and this great glory and victory in battle, like that kind of kingdom, Jesus says, no, mine doesn't look anything like that. My kingdom's different. He keeps saying crazy stuff like, my kingdom is for the people that are poor, <laughs> outsiders. My kingdom is for the weak. The people in my kingdom that are blessed are, 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 are meek and they're mild, that they serve one another. You want to be first in my kingdom? Figure out how to be last. Like, this kingdom is upside down from the way that you're used to thinking about it. I'm remaking the world in, an, in the way that it's supposed to be. And, and the way that it's supposed to be is, is, well, where the greatest serves. And if you want to follow me, that's the way that you need to go. Are you sure you love me? And, and so that's what he's calling Peter to. He's calling Peter to work in this upside down kingdom. And as he's calling to him this, this it's just like this beautiful scene. Because P, I think if you ask Peter like later in his life, you know, if you're like, hey man, like I heard Peter that, like, that when they came to arrest Jesus that you picked up a sword and you hit a guy. Was that like a low moment? Was that like a low moment in your life? I think Peter would be like, nope. Hey, did I heard that John and he were racing to the tomb when you heard it was empty and that John beat you there and you just raced right in. Was that like a low moment? Nope, that wasn't a low point in my life. I, I bet you he would point to the moment that he's standing in the courtyard and he denied that he even knew his savior. He's just come off of that moment, a low point in his life where he denied Jesus. I think, just can you imagine, he just, it breaks him and he weeps. He doesn't understand what's happening. His worldview is destroyed and on top of everything, he's denied his friend and his savior. And I love this scene so much because this is what our God is like. When we deny him, he shows up on the beach and he makes us breakfast. We're fresh off denying him. Yesterday, this morning, what is our God like? His mercies are new every day. His mercies are new every day. I know that you denied me. Why don't you come have breakfast? Let me talk about who I am again. Let me teach you again. Let me feed you again. This is what our God is like. That he invites us into this, even off of our great failures, he invites us into this intimate relationship with him. To, to learn from him, to be taught by him, to be sent out by him. As a matter of fact, I don't know that Jesus uses anybody but traitors and deniers. <laughs> I mean, who else has he got to work with? It doesn't matter what that you've done. It, it doesn't matter how far you've fallen. It doesn't matter how low you think you are. The God of all creation has come in the flesh and he sits down and he invites you to breakfast. And here's what he asks for you. Just get out of the boat and swim. Just jump out of the boat and go to him. If I had been in that boat, here's how that goes. Uh, hey, uh, there's a stranger on the boat, uh, on the shore telling us to cast our nets on the other side like we don't know what we're doing. Like, I, I did this with, like, before I followed Jesus, I know how to fish, you think I know how to fish? Hey, stranger, shut up. I think it's really interesting that they even did it, right? 
I think there's something more going on. It's a whole different sermon, but I think that the, uh, probably the words of Jesus are so powerful, they compel us to do what he commands. Anyway, so he throws, they, they, for some strange reason, they throw their nets on the other side. All this fish come up. John goes, probably John. He's never, just, he's just referred to as the, the disciple Jesus loves. Probably John says, uh, oh my goodness, it's Jesus. You know what I would have done in that moment? I'd have like looked like I was doing something on the other side of the boat and slowly just slipped off the other side of the boat and like hid and just hope I drowned, right? Not Peter, man. He just jumps in the water. When my weakness is exposed, I hide. What we have to do is we just go to him. I don't care if you come in the boat. I mean, they probably beat him to the shore. They're only 100 yards out, right? I don't care how you do it, but I think the maturity in the Christian life is that when we stumble and when we fall is that we run to Jesus and don't hide. And that's what's required to receive these new mercies every day is to go to him. He meets us and desires to feed us, to restore us. If I was a different type of preacher, I'd probably say something like, stop fishing in places that don't feed you and fish where Jesus tells you to. But you know, yeah, like I make fun of that because I, it's kind of part of my shtick, right? I dress funny and I dress inappropriately and make fun of things. Uh, but yeah, right? Yeah, stop, like we keep doing all these things where we're restless or doing all these things that aren't producing the thing that they should be producing in our minds maybe try it his way. Also, I love the fact that the restoration is greater than the failure. I mean, he doesn't just restore him to relationship. He says, I'm gonna send you out as one of the leaders. I need you to feed my sheep. He puts leadership on him. The restoration is always greater than the death. I think before this moment, there's no way Peter could have been a leader. He would have led out of strength, right? There's no way he could have led the way that Jesus wants him to lead. He's been walking with Jesus for years, but in his head and his heart, he's following just an idea of Jesus that he made up until this, on the other side of the cross, until this moment when he sees this restoration, now he is ready to go and lead. But his leadership, in a, it, just, it looks different in Jesus' kingdom. He says, look, I need you to go feed my sheep. This is the way, right? This is how it looks in the Christian life. There's no, like, there's no you being like the second in command of some kind of army. There's only you leading the way that I lead, which is by serving. There's this moment when he says, you think uh, in the upper room, when he goes, hey, I, I'm gonna go wherever you go. And Jesus goes, you're gonna go where I go? You don't even know what you're saying, man. You're gonna lead, the, you're gonna, I'm gonna do it, I'm ready, I'm ready to do anything for you. You're gonna go where I go? Actually, you know what? You are, but you're not gonna love it. I'm paraphrasing. That's roughly what Jesus says. You're not gonna love it. Because the way that I go, when I call you to be right beside me, it's actually in service. It's actually in the way of the cross. I need you to go and I want you to nourish my people. I want you to teach them to obey me. I want, to teach, I want you to teach them why they should wanna go this way even though it looks so insane. I want you to go with me. You're gonna to have to lead people down this path. It isn't easy and it isn't always fun. There are easier things to do uh, with your time and resources than to turn to your, to your kids and your spouse and your friends and people you don't particularly even love being around and just pour your life out for them. But it's the way. He wasn't ready to lead before this failure. I think the failure prepared him to leave from a humble place, to see Jesus rightly, that this wasn't about him, but always about Jesus. 
I think that so often leadership in Jesus' kingdom comes from places of loss and weakness and failure. We, we lead out of those places. You go through these things here in life and these embarrassing failures and these embarrassing inadequacies that just are part of being a human. And Jesus calls us to him. We go to him. He goes, yeah. And we deal with it. We understand. Yes, I've misunderstood you. I've believed, believed lies. And he restores us. And he says, now I need, you to go, I need you to go help other people out of your weakness. Uh, several times, some people have contacted me um, in the past years uh, about helping them uh, uh, give a testimony. And, and here's the deal. I, I know what they meant. I, I grew up in a, uh, in a culture where like, uh, the best testimonies involve the, ba- uh, you know, the bathroom floor of a bus station, right? And, and like, like those are the only good ones. And, and, and what, I knew what they meant was, well, here's how testimonies, uh, what, what was meant by testimony. A testimony is, I did this thing. It was really, really bad. It was a thing that none of you would ever do. And I did this really bad thing, and uh, then I found Jesus, and now my life is perfect. And so they contacted me, and I said, is that your story? And they were like, no, that's not my story at all. (laughs) My story is, I said, is your story more something like this? Is it like, hey, I was doing all of these things, pursuing all of the wrong things, and then I just got caught for the fruit of of, of the bad decisions that I've been doing for 15 years? And by the way, the things that I was doing are the same as things that you're doing, just this produced this in my life, it's producing something else in yours. Matter of fact, we're not that different, this is just the opportunity and I got caught. Nobody wants to hear that. Oh, and by the way, Jesus has restored me and it's still hard every single day, my life's not perfect. Nobody wants to hear that testimony. Not back then, but that's Peter's testimony. It's the testimony that helps. The testimony that helps us is the one that says, I, it was awful and it's still hard and I stumble, and I fall, and I just need you guys to help me. That's the testimony that helps us. That's the testimony that moves us when we lead and we teach out of weakness. That's why Paul says these crazy things like, I boast only in my weakness. (laughs) And Jesus is going to ask you to lead others. He expects it of you, right? If you're gonna follow him, he expects you to lead others out of these places of weakness, out of these places of brokenness. It's so much easier to lead out of strength. Hey, everybody come follow me. I've memorized 10 verses. You've memorized 10 verses too and you can be holy like me. That's way easier than admitting that we're flawed and we hurt and that we stumble and we struggle. He expects us to lead out of this because you know forgiveness. You can show others what it's like. Peter, I want you to lead people in that and you and me too. I think Peter finally sees Jesus and his mission for what it really is, that, he's going to be glor- that he was glorified in the cross, that that was what he came to do, and that he asked us to follow there, and he does it all because of his love for Jesus. So w- when you think about your devotion to Jesus, where does it stand in the light of who he's revealed himself to be? Because when following Jesus becomes difficult, here's what I think we need to do. And by the way, uh, it will have its tough moments following Jesus. He asks you to do all manner of insane things, uh, like uh, give money away generously. Uh, in, in, in our upside, in our right side up world, right? Our right side up, how, no, the Jesus that I want to follow really doesn't ask me to give up things that I love. He wouldn't ask me to not take a vacation so I can give money away. That's not the Jesus that I serve. He asks you to do crazy things like spend time with people that you don't love spending time with. <laughs> what? I don't, I, don't have enough, I don't have enough time to spend time with people I like. You want me to spend time with people I don't love being around? Yeah, for sure. He's going to ask you to do that. 
This is right there in the text. He says it all over the place. Yeah, unity. People are different. Pour your lives out for other people. He's going to ask you to do all manner of things that you find difficult and hard. He's going to ask you to give up things that are precious to you. Relationships, grudges that you hold on to, he asks you to give them up. So when it gets hard, I think that we have a tendency to focus on the difficulty. Here's what I think that we should do instead. Instead of focusing on the difficulty, we focus on the Savior. Right? Look who he is and what he's done. The gift that he's promised is far, far greater. What he's promised, that this is actually the way, whether we believe it or not, to flourishing is to go his way. To believe that what he has for us is way better. We have to believe that the resurrection is coming and that giving up what you could have immediately for what is eternal is really no great loss at all. Look, we're just, if you're a Christian, you're called to follow Jesus in an upside down world. And he'll ask you to do upside down things. Things that you'll look at and go, that can't be right. But if it's here, then it's true. And it is what he asked. He actually asks you to give him your time. He asks him to give you his loves. Your loves, he asks you to give everything for him. To organize your day and your weeks and your years around rhythms of worship, of feasting and fasting. Yeah, those things are helpful. Here's the bottom line. I'm not doing it right and I suspect you aren't either. But I need your help. And I suspect that you need our help as well. We stumble and we fall, picking each other up and pointing each other to Jesus, saying, we're still going, we're going this way, and we're going together. If you're looking for how to do this, and because we, we, we do it together, right? We do these, these hard things, these upside-down things. We remind ourselves, oh, that's right, even though I don't want to do this, I, we're in an upside-down kingdom, and I'm going to do it anyway. And if you wonder how to, where to start, man, here, here's where you start. Uh, serving the kids. That's what you do. You're like, well, surely the Jesus I follow wouldn't ask me to do that. That's way too much. Yeah, no, he might. Yeah, go serve on the kids, man. Go teach them stories. Uh, we, uh, they do such a great job in BCC Kids of setting teachers up for success. Well, Jesus wouldn't really ask me to do something that doesn't give me life. Every day he will. Find a place to serve. It starts small. And what you'll find, I think, when you test this I think when you go to him and go, I don't know, just a little bit, I think what he does is he meets us and his mercies are new and he goes, you take a little step towards me and you take a little step and he blesses us and you find grace and service and you're like, oh, okay, hmm, how about that? It was hard and it was difficult, but he blessed me in it. Maybe I'll take another step and I think he'll meet you there. And the next step, I think he'll meet you there. This is what our God is like. His mercies are new every day. He longs to restore you. He longs not just to restore you, but to put you into service for the coming kingdom that is upside down. Let's pray. Father, what a savior. What a savior. We worship you. God, let's see Jesus is so beautiful. What an image sitting on a beach, making breakfast. (sighs) After we betrayed him. This is what you still call us to. You still call people to run to you. 
May all of our other false saviors fail us terribly if that's what it takes to make us run to you. To see you as perfect, to see you how you are as inviting, welcoming, from our lowest spot or from wherever we are, to throw us into service knowing that we're gonna stumble and fall. I'll protect our steps. Guard this church. Man, these people, I love them so much and I know that you love them so much. I love them imperfectly, but you love them perfectly. Stir them up. Stir our hearts up to lead. Hmm. To lead from weakness. You are good. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.